You're listening to Creatives Making Money, the podcast for creatives who are on a mission to do the work they feel most called to do and make some money while they do it. This is a show for the makers, the dreamers, the doers, the creators, the artists, the crazy ones, and the ones who are determined to consciously build the life and career of their dreams. Here, we don't just believe in getting your dream job, we believe in creating it. So what does creative success even look like? How do we live a fully expressed, abundant AF life? That's precisely what we're here to find out. My mission with Creatives Making Money is to conduct 100 interviews with successful creatives and those who love and support them about money, career, and the process of making and doing what they most love, including all of the ups, downs, and in-betweens. I'm your host, Jamie Jensen, writer, storyteller, filmmaker, serial entrepreneur, and shameless creator. No matter where you are in your creative and financial journey, I'm here to help you create like you mean it. Hello and welcome to Creators Making Money. Today I have a very special guest with us, Elisa Forneray. Elisa is a grief guide, writer, and facilitator who creates space for people to learn about grief. She began working in the grief space after her mom died in 2016, but had been a writer for over 10 years before that. Today she's pursuing her passion as a writer with a focus on grief, death, and how we can support each other through challenging times. Thank you so much for being here with us. (laughs) Of course. Of course. Thank you for having me. I have so many questions, so many questions. Um, and my audience is used to me talking a lot about grief at this point. And I'm just, yeah, my first, I think my first question sort of diving into this conversation with you really is about like, what is your definition of grief? Like, how do you define it and how do you explain it to people? Yeah. So for me, I think this feels like it's always just such a cop-out answer, but it is an experience that is unique to all of us. Um, for some, I know that it really manifests as something physical and a physical experience that they're having, and that's the best way to define it. For others, it's emotional. For others, it's spiritual. Um, for me, when I think about it in broad terms, it is the experience of processing the loss of someone, anyone or something or anything, um, that you had in your life previously. I think the, you know, the majority of the work that I do is focused on death and death related loss. Um, but grief can be associated with any kind of loss or challenge. Um, that means losing something or losing touch with something that existed in our lives before. Thank you. (laughs) It's funny because I've had um, friends of mine ask me like, is grief a feeling? And I'm like, I don't know. Cause you could be, I feel like there are days where you could be like, I feel grief, but then it is, it's, it's an experience like you said. Yeah. And I think it's so complex and involves feelings and it involves feeling things in different ways. I feel emotions. I feel things physically. I feel things spiritually when I'm grieving. Um, It just has so many layers. And I think, again, is just so personalized for so many people um, that it's, it's completely different. But yeah, that's what it is for me. It's it's feeling all the feels, (laughs) honestly, in so many different ways. Yeah. And I love that framework 
I love that framework a lot because also what I think that gives to anyone who's listening and what that gives to, uh, you know, to us is this concept of being able to also kind of check in with like those different areas of yourself at any given time to see where you are with your grief. Like, how's your body today? How are your emotions today? How's your spirit today? Um, so yeah, I love that. And turn like, yeah. Mm. In terms of um, writing and sort of your journey as a writer, because you were writing for 10 years prior to taking this on and sort of answering this call for where you are at this moment, um, how did you know that you were a writer? Uh, I was accepted to my high school newspaper and they said that I could write for them. So I did. (laughs) I I was like, okay, um, I guess I'm good at this. Uh, I, I started writing, yeah, in high school for my high school newspaper. And I was writing about music because it impressed my boyfriend at the time. And so I was like reviewing Bright Eyes albums and just like, just writing trash. But um, when I, when I went to college, I did my undergrad um, in creative nonfiction. And I think I realized, especially in that moment and over those many years that I did my undergrad, um, that writing and being able to write was something that um, was so fluid and that good writing um, and creative writing, especially creative nonfiction, it opened so many doors for me that meant, okay, maybe I don't, I won't be a journalist because that's what I thought I was going to go do after high school. And I was like, maybe I won't do that. But that doesn't mean that I can't write if I'm not going to write news stories all the time. I can write some wacky, wacky stuff and still use this talent and this skill. Um, and I think for me, when I made that transition from knowing I'm not going to be a journalist, I'm not going to write like news features and hooks and all of that um, for a traditional publication, it sort of made me realize, oh, I am a writer um, and I can be a writer that fits outside of that box. And so, yeah, and I spent the first, the majority of my writing career um, writing about food and studying cultural, cultural anthropology. So, yeah. Do you have a favorite thing from that period of your life that you wrote, like a favorite piece or something when you talk about um, being able to be really wacky with what you're creating? All I'm thinking is like, there's got to be some favorite thing or some, yeah. Yeah. um, So the university that I went to is called the, for my last year, a couple years of college was um, the Evergreen State College in, in Olympia, Washington very progressive, very liberal. And for the programs that I was in, um, I was able to do field research for my last two years of my degree. So for the the second to last year, I lived in Minnesota, um, in Duluth, Minnesota, and wrote about casseroles. And for my last year, my senior year, I wrote about crawfish boils for my senior thesis. So those are like my two favorite, just moments of my career that I could never do now because I would never be able to make money doing that. But in those moments, to be able to, you know, write and just like be in church basements with old ladies in Duluth, Minnesota in the middle of winter and be writing about the importance of gathering around food and the importance of building community around recipes that had existed within community for so long was such a random 
thing um, for me to pursue, but such a beautiful opportunity to be in the field and you know, making a connection between something really bizarre and, and a little wacky. Um, but it, it meant a lot to me to be in, in, in community with people and doing that. So that's my favorite. And I just got to like eat casseroles all the time. I ate like a hundred like tater tot casseroles in church basements. It was so, it was so weird. Um, but that's definitely, definitely one of my favorites. And then I wrote a lot about crawfish boils um, and food in New Orleans, Louisiana for my last year. So how did you choose casseroles and like, how did it end up being, it's going to be casseroles in Duluth, Minnesota and crawfish boils in New Orleans, like in New Orleans. How did that, how did that decision happen? Um, yeah. So the, the year that I was doing that program, um, we were, unless we had a really good reason to stay, we were required to go into the field and go to another place. Like some people in my program, they like, rode trains just in circles around the country, writing about things that they were seeing or doing. For me, I was like, it's definitely going to be about food because that's what my passion was at the time and was for the majority of my career after that. Um, But I was like doing a Google search or was reading the news or something and this, they're called hot dishes. And this article about hot dishes came up and I was like, hot dish, what is that? And then I was like, guess I'll go figure it out. And so I like packed up um, and drove, like, was just like, I'll just take the train to Minnesota. I got on the train, went to Minnesota, found a place to live and was like, I honestly don't have any better ideas than this. And I knew that there was going to be um, especially in the Midwest, this connection between food and community and family and passing down recipes. And, and what I learned was that that was true and that there was also this um, history of being able to cook for people that you love and pass down recipes um, through mostly like fundraising cookbooks that these hot dish recipes were kept in. Um, so yeah, it was random. And then I went and I was like, oh, this is a decent idea. I got some travel out of it to a place that I've never been. So yeah. And I got to eat a lot of like mushroom soup and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what was um did anything surprise you? In Minnesota? In terms of what you learned. Yeah. Uh, I'm just the winter. Yeah. That like okay. completely redefined winter for me. I moved I think I moved like the day after Valentine's Day that year. So it was like the middle of February. And I was just like, oh, this is pretty real. And I did not pack for this. And we got snowed into our house in the first week that I was living there. And I was like, this is terrible. I'm from California. So I was like, this is not winter. Winter is like 70 degrees and the sun is out. Um, but I think um, one of the things that surprised me was how you know, and it's really interesting thinking back. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, um, just with BLM and being within the death care community that we're having a lot of conversations right now about race and and community and what it means to be a person of color in these spaces that are built around community. I'm even more so now surprised by the fact that I was just showing up on these doorsteps and talking to people and welcomed into their homes, into their churches, which people think are traditionally like welcoming places. But as a Black woman um, alone in the middle of the country, 
looking back now, I'm like, would I do that? Absolutely not right now. Um, but it was just, people were so nice to me, probably because I was trying to have conversations with them about something that felt very personal and so important to their family history and their community history. And I was like, I remember I got um, this woman, Beatrice Ojukangas is a cookbook author and just this incredible woman from the Midwest. And um, I remember I got an interview with her and I was like, I can't believe how excited I am to have an interview with like the queen of casseroles. It felt really exciting and incredible, but then I was like, but that's just who these people are. Like, they're just so kind and welcoming and nice. So it's pretty wild. I would not do that right now. That's like the last thing I'm trying to do is travel around middle America, um, like alone, trying to talk to people about weird shit. But I think um, it was, it gave me this love for the Midwest, especially being from the West Coast and never spending any time there. That was really surprising. And I think sticks sticks with me and makes me really appreciative of those spaces that people create that are just meant to be welcoming. Yeah, I love the way you put that. Also, like, I can't, my brain can't help but go to like, what are all the craziest casserole recipes? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I like the thing, and it's so good. And that's the thing, like, I am not here to like talk crap on casseroles or anything I ate during that period because I can tell you right now that cream of anything, like, I interviewed the mayor, um, and like, we talked about this, and it was just like, cream of anything with potatoes and some kind of meat is gonna be good like it's gonna be pretty good <laughs> it's creamy it's crunchy it has a lot of flavor and i think too what really matters with recipes like that is that the person that's serving it to you regardless of what is in it they are creating a meal for you with love and that is what is intended to be on that plate whether it's like cream of mushroom soup and like old tuna from the back of their fridge, they have put the time in to nourish your body. And I think it's just, I'm like, I'll eat any of it, put any of that in front of me and I will eat it right now. Um, yeah, there's some wacky recipes. I'll, I'll probably send you some after this. I never get to talk about this. This is so fun. It was such a weird point in my life. Oof. Um, yeah. I would love the recipes and I'm sure we will happily add them to show notes as Great. well. <laughs> We're just going to send people on a wild casserole journey. <laughs> Enjoy. Um, you mentioned this, so I want to touch on it. One of the things that came up was you're like, I could never do that now because I could never get paid to do that. Mm. And so I, I want to, my, and my first thought was like, I feel like there is a way if that was what you really wanted, which is not the conversation we're having. and it brings up an interesting point. Well, not point, but like sort of a little pathway I want to walk down in our conversation around getting paid as a writer. Mm. And I'm sort of curious if you, if there were any particular, I want to say like bumps you've hit, like hit bumped up against in your journey as a writer where you were like, didn't think you were going to get paid and then you did or, um, <laughs> Nope. Just sort of how that's shown up for you. Is that a weird question? I don't know. You know what I'm saying. I'm yeah. The idea now. of like 
<laughs> not thinking I'm going to get paid and then getting paid sounds like a dream. Um, I mean, I think I said that because you, you hit the nail on the head. I don't want to do that anymore. And what I would need to do or the kind of publication that I would need to work for would absolutely not be fulfilling enough for me to do it full time to then make the money that I make doing what I do that does fill me up and light me up. Um, and I think, you know, people obviously get paid to write about all kinds of things, um, casseroles included, but I, that, that, that road was just not meant for me. And, and I, I realized that very clearly when my mom died, that food writing was something that was, and I had a lot of opportunity and connections and like just beautiful experiences in that space. And I was building my career toward doing that for my whole life. And it, it became very clear that it just wasn't for me. So, yeah. It's, um, <clears throat> I resonate with that as I'm sure it's, that's like a very resonant. Um, and what you're also sort of getting at is like how, when we lose someone like a parent, you know, or someone else that we love that is close to us, it can like, it like can propel us in a whole new direction that we never could have seen coming. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to hear if you're open to sharing, you know, more about for you, how, how that discovery sort of happened. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, So in 2015, I had been working for a startup um, and I was like brought to New Orleans to start the editorial department for a startup. It was like my, my dream. It was and like to this day, and I've had some dreams come true. That was someone calling me and bringing me in to, to live my dream. Um, so I went down and I like hired a team and we worked on the launch of the editorial department for this startup that was doing pop-ups across the country and it was food focused and it was so creative and weird. We were writing about like the weird stuff too. So we were writing about Nutria recipes and it, it was so exciting. Um, and in Oct- in December, 2015, they went bankrupt and I was like, all right, well, editorial is definitely going to be the first thing that you cut. Um, and so I got laid off and laid off the rest of my team. And the designer that I was working with at the time, we were like, we don't have anything to do. We were thinking about moving to New York and we were like, okay, let's start a project. And the project that we started um, was focused. We decided of all the topics, what topic would be the most bizarre to pick? And we picked death. And so, um, we picked the topic of death and for about a year we're working on a couple of different projects and different kinds of creative writing photography projects focused on death in the abstract so it was very creative it was all about art and like death and culture and making playlists doing photo shoots of like funeral teas in nashville and driving around the country it was beautiful um and about a month before we went to print on that project my mom went into the icu and died and you know there was a lot of food elements in it i knew that there was still going to be some sort of thread of food in what i was going to do and when my mom died and we were about to go to print i was like i'm going to see this project out but there is just this 
shift for me in knowing that I want to talk about death and it had felt after doing it for a year, it felt so natural and so real and important. Um, but I didn't want to do it in the abstract anymore. And I was thinking, you know, I have the talent and the skill and the interest and the connections to continue writing. Obviously that's th that part I know I'm going to do forever, but it, I need to turn inward and I need to look at myself and I need to take these connections and these skills um, and, and, and write about my grief and write about what's actually important to me, which is better understanding what it is that I'm experiencing and going through and also creating a space um, for people who looked like me and wanted to talk about grief in the way that I do, which I wasn't finding. So that's where the pivot really came for me. And I was like, I could write about casseroles. I could write about nutria. I could travel around and eat strange foods and 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 feel fulfilled a little bit, but it it just didn't feel right anymore. And the minute I started doing it, it like writing about grief, it just resonated so much more with me and and my purpose and the audience that I built was really special. So that's, that's where I am now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's, I listen, I think your work is so important. So mm, thank you. Just, yeah. <clears throat> I'm curious if you, if you could create, um, like if there were like a utopian version of how we deal with grief and I say how I say we as a culture meaning like in America which is like <laughs> there's no we you know what I'm saying however assuming that there was like because you know the way that we deal with death changes based on our backgrounds our religious backgrounds like so many different aspects to consider but if there were a utopian version of this in your world where you were the leader you're the president of this world and this is how we deal with grief and death. <laughs> what would that like look like for you? So I think the, the biggest change that I would make and the thing that I would want to see is more of an attention and an acknowledgement of the personalization of how people are allowed to and given the resources to address their grief. Um, and I know you you have talked a little bit about the acknowledgement of just acknowledging what's going on for you. And I think for me, acknowledgement and the, the piece that's really important around acknowledgement is acknowledging that, yes, maybe we're all grieving in some way collectively right now, but the way that it impacts us and our bodies and our community, and how it's gonna impact our future and our circles and our networks is, completely different. And I think that what I really struggled with when my mom died was, you know, not even like the stages and just steps and being told like, you can get over this. There's recovery. There's all these things. I was like, I just want to feel what I feel. And I want somebody to tell me that that's okay. Not that I need to fit into a box or I need to experience certain emotions because I think the most challenging thing after my mom died was realizing talking to somebody about this the other day was that jealousy of my sister who'd gotten married before my mom died and I wasn't married yet when she died was so real for me and I was like nobody talks about this this isn't a step this is an emotion that people talk about and if 
there was a world where everyone was allowed to and encouraged to feel what they need to feel and to experience things however they need to experience them and talk about the people that have died however they want to talk about them without feeling shame or feeling stigma about being angry or jealous or sad, like sad or happy that someone's gone. Um, that is my dream, like being able to move through your grief in a personal way um, and, and more encouragement of that. That's the dream. I'll run that world. That sounds great to me. <laughs> I will vote for you. Yeah. <laughs> One down. Here we go. <laughs> <clears throat> um, I, I, so there was a Los Angeles Times article that you were quoted in. And what you said is just amazing. And you talk about the experience of grief in the Black community, especially at this moment in time. And you shared our experience with trauma is different. We are carrying so much right now. Our burdens are different. Um, and you talk about when you're on a call with a bunch of black women working in the death space, you're speaking differently because it's more of a safe environment. You know, that, I mean, that second comment was more about what the death positivity space looks like. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, can you just share more for me and for our audience um, when you talk about the experience being different, what do you think, what do you think the black community needs that, um, in terms of grief processing that isn't available and it might just be you. <laughs> oh my gosh. More, fa more faces like you, you know what I mean? More, <laughs> more experts like you, more, you know what I mean? Um, Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that, I think there's a lot of incredible people and Black women and people of color doing work in this space. Um, I think that what we need working in the grief space and what people of color need is to have our voices amplified within the death care community um, because like I said, finding resources um, that are culturally specific, that are accessible, and people that look and sound and have lived experience similar to yours is so incredibly important. Um, but the dominant voices in the space, especially in the the, the grief and death space, um, and the, the resources that you find when you do like that light Google in your most vulnerable moments, um, we're not always necessarily what's jump into the top, um, even if that's what people really need. And I think, you know, in that, that panel, it was so clear from the response that we got that our grief and our experience, especially in this moment with collective grief and trauma is so different um, in the weight that is carried, um, in the way that we want to and need to process grief in community and, and surrounded by other people. And I think too, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I always talk about this with dead moms club people. And I'm like, it's so nice when you meet someone whose mom has died. I don't know if you've experienced this with like your dad or your partner, but where you sort of meet them in the middle 
And you don't have to explain all of that other stuff that like people are like, just not, they don't know. They don't know. They have to ask you questions. They have to get up to speed. They have to understand why are you sad today? I'm like, why does it matter if I'm sad today? I'm sad every day. And, and, but there are those people that you meet when they've experienced some of their loss and they're like, oh, I'm sad today too. Or like, of course you're sad today. Why wouldn't you be sad? Your fucking mom's dead. And I think that it feels very similar in this moment as a, a, just a person of color and especially as a, a person who's black and African-American is like being so overwhelmed with grief and sadness and stress about, yes, people that I have never met and some people that I have met, um, to have to get people up to speed about why going into work is so challenging or to have to get people up to speed about why it is so hard to leave your house when you're afraid of going outside and so, so deeply emotionally exhausted from just opening your computer or your phone and reading the news every day. To be able to have somebody meet you at that place and not question any of that and understand your grief and your experience, um, it is just, it is so important in these moments. It takes a burden. Um, off of people of color to have to explain why their grief is valid or why it exists um, because it is it's just so much more in this moment that i truly believe and know um from talking to so many people that we're carrying just literally waking up every morning being in our skin and in this country and in this moment Yep. <laughs> I'm just nodding and like energetically holding all of like just hugging you and hearing that. Um, not in an inappropriate way, only if you consent to the energetic hug. <laughs> I consent to your energetic hug. I receive that. Thank hmm. you. When you talk about celebrating life and death, sort of having a celebratory attitude towards both things, can you just say a little bit more about that for anyone who's like new to the concept of celebrating death or like what it even means to be death positive? Yeah. Um, so for me and my work, I, I mean, I celebrate my mom and her life all the time. Um, and in terms of celebrating both life and death, I think it's really just wrapped up in, being able to understand that both are a part of our existence and acknowledge that and honor that. Um, and then in terms of being death positive, I just am, you know, and especially for the last couple of years, just for me describe it as like just being so here for it and aware of it and appreciative of the fact that people are capable in this industry and in this this space of having very real frank conversations about things that are very very challenging but a very real part of life that we just need to be on board with which is death and grief and loss and end of life care um and i think the other thing about it is I think when you hear death positive, it means like, oh, you're just like ready to die or you want to die or you're okay with dying. I personally acknowledge the fact that I am going to die. I don't feel ready personally to die today. 
Um, but I do understand and acknowledge that it is a part of what could happen to me if I walk out the door and making myself more prepared, my family more prepared and everyone around me more prepared by having positive, active, you know, not aggressive, but like real conversations about death and dying um, to me feels incredibly important and important just to sort of like push that into the community as much as possible. So I think it's hard because I think some people hear death positive and it's like, oh, it feels like you have to completely shift your mentality to, to being fine with the fact that you're going to die and that you want to die and like you're ready to die and you're here for it. And no, I think it's, it's just an opportunity for all of us to rethink our relationship with death and the fact that it's going to happen and be able to have conversations about it. I have so many questions I want to ask you. <laughs> I'm doing I'm my best to keep myself focused so we don't go on for 20 hours. Um, in terms of one of the things that you mentioned, which I totally resonate with also is, you know, when you meet someone who's also been through the thing or something similar there, it comes with that like immediate mental download of like, Oh, you know exactly what this is like. Um, and I can speak from experience for me uh, with the partner that I lost, that it was a lot of like, no one else my age gets what it's like. He was 31 and like people are dating and that's weird. And what it's just like the experience of what was happening for me was like a widowed experience. And then, and it is that, that discovering, I recently discovered that there is a dead ex-boyfriends club. Like that's a mm -hmm. thing. And I was like, Oh, people get this. <laughs> cool. Um, not that that's like a great thing to be happy about for anyone, but you know, and having the club is good. That's how I feel about dead mom. Like at least there's community around it. I thought I was alone and I'm not. And that's, 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 that is a good thing to know that you can find each other. Yeah. 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 Cause it's like, I don't qualify as a widow, so I'm not really in that bucket, but I'm all, but I'm sort of over here and um, so it's interesting, like you do, it, there is that feeling of discovery, which by the way, that only happened for me like a week ago. And there is that feeling in discovery of just like the weight that it takes off of you to just have that like immediate understanding of like, oh, you get this. And like, here are all the things that you probably also went through that I don't need to explain. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And what that made me think about to ask you next is in terms of handling grief um, and sort of holding space for it as people are trying to function in their everyday life and sort of like, oh, I took my two weeks bereavement and now I'm coming back to work. Um, and would you, working with someone, sort of ask, tell them like, here's how I want you to communicate, like have a communication strategy for how you're approaching your coworkers or sort of like, um, because the interesting thing that happens when someone dies and you're in deep grief is like everyone else gets uncomfortable because they don't know how to treat you, right? Mm -hmm. So what is your advice around that for kind of reapproaching work as the bereaved and potentially having conversations about how the people in their lives can support them, you know, or yeah. Yeah, a couple of things. Um, the first is 
I think the conversations and being able to have them at work is really important if you have a safe space to do so, but not everybody does. So in an ideal world, of course, I would say like, find all your advocates and like tell them what you need and what you don't need and make sure that like, if you need time off, they're going to give it to you. And I just had a conversation about this the other day and I was like, I came in hot at my current workplace where I'm, I'm a full-time writer. And I was like, y'all, like I work in grief. I'm like, I need these days off. I like talk about grief all the time. I talk about my mom being dead all the time. And that is a, privilege to work in a place that has a company culture that can handle that and where I'm placed with a manager who can talk to me about those things. And so I wish that I could say to everyone that they should go in and feel prepared to be able to have these conversations in the workplace, but our modern workplace in a lot of cases is not built to handle that. And I think one of the most important things is figuring out for yourself what you need to be able to return to work and even if your workplace can't give you that, there are other things that you can do outside of work or with people in your personal network that can bring that to life for you throughout your workday. So for example, yeah, maybe you can't talk to your manager when you're having a really hard time, but if you know that there's someone in your life that you can who will check in on you, who you can reach out to at any time between the hours of 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. to be your support system, you can put that person in charge of answering their phone whenever you need to call them during the workday and have that outlet, even if it's not going to be someone at work. Um, the other thing I would say is that there's, it's pretty cool. And this is why like I started creating these resources was because when I went back to work, I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then I was like, Oh shit, I am not fine. This is not good. I ended up leaving the job that I took um, right after uh, I moved to Vancouver where I was living for the last couple of years. And, um, I went into an office and went back to a nine to five and had some issues with managers. And I was like, oh, this is, this is not gonna work for me. And that's when I realized that there was preparation that I could do in advance of going into an office. And that involved figuring out what I need day to day. So it's like, I need snacks. I need things that will keep me nourished. My body gets really tired when I'm grieving. I get so exhausted. And then having to like go to work and just like put up with dumb stuff from people. I'm like, okay, I need snacks in my desk. And that's a part of like a grief package for myself. I need snacks in my desk. Um, my last uh, grief counselor, she was like, cool, whenever you're having issues, like if you keep something of your mom's on your chair, for example, that'll feel like it brings you protection, like keep that at your physical desk in your office. You and put it around your shoulders or just sort of have it on your lap and it'll bring you that protection. Other things like um, my, uh, my uh, partner, he bought me some like lavender oil that I kept on my desk. Everybody thought that I was just like really into essential oils. And I was like, no, when these certain things are triggered in my grief, this will help me process it. So I like go in the bathroom and I'm like, smell my essential oils and I like calm down and I feel good. But I surrounded myself with tangible things and certain people, but it took a lot of preparation. So I needed to identify what happens to me when I'm grieving. Okay. I get really tired. I'm going to need some nourishment. What else happens? Oh, I get like really sad and I just need to talk to people here's a person that I can talk to who's willing to talk to me during the workday and will pick up their phone. Sometimes I feel really threatened by people in the office who like, if I start to cry, they get really freaked out. So if I can have that shawl of my mom's and I can put it on me and feel protected whenever I'm feeling attacked by them, like it'll bring me some peace. So I sort of, you know, I think that it is 
incredible to be able to talk to people. And sometimes you also just need to do your own thing and make sure that you are safe and figure out what is going to keep you feeling safe and grounded at work. And then the other thing, and like, this is a huge, huge, huge privilege. But for me, like I was in a place that was very counterproductive to me being able to process my grief. Um, and for, and it was not flexible in terms of what I needed to hear from the people that were in leadership at that company about how I was dealing with my grief. And so I had the privilege to leave. Um, I got a call from my dad when I was like in bed, I was burnt out. I couldn't get out of bed and go to work. And he was like, Elisa, you, like, you have to quit your body and your brain is more important than a marketing agency. Like this is grief. You are grieving. We need to find a way that will allow you obviously to like make money, but also to heal. Um, because long-term being at work is important. It is incredibly important and it's important for a lot of different reasons to, to everyone. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I will always say this, and I've said this to every manager since my body is more important than this job will ever be. And my physical and mental health is more important than this job will ever, ever be. And I think that when I lump grief into that, um, it helps me feel empowered to care for myself while I'm sitting at my desk. And even in the last couple of months, like sitting there, like on zoom, like wipe my eyes. I'm on zoom. I like take the meeting and then I shut the computer and I just start sobbing again. And I'm like, okay, I'm finding the balance. I'm finding what I need. And then when I get to a point where I know like I need to take a week off, I advocate for myself because I know that my brain and my body is more important than pushing through. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I would tell people who are returning to work is it's complicated. It's challenging. There are things that you can do for yourself. And I also just the reason that I'm getting into doing this work in the workplace is because I don't want it to be like this forever. I want people to be able to talk to their manager or their colleague. And I think that one of the most beautiful things about being able to have those conversations is the more I open up about my mom, the more people I find at work who've lost moms, dads, children who are like, oh, I randomly grieve on a Tuesday too because it's the day of whatever loss I had. And it, it builds connections internally that I think make just being at work for 40 plus hours a week so much easier. And if grief can be the thing that connects us, like, why not? Do you think it's hard for someone to advocate for themselves the way that you're suggesting? Because I feel like what you're saying too is like step one is like acknowledge your grief and like make yourself, make yourself and your care of yourself that important. Do you think that that's, like, was that easy for you to do? Was that hard for you to do? Do you ever see that being challenging for people as you're sort of oh, working with them? Yeah, of course that's hard. I had many days of crying in the bathroom in the elevator before I was like, F all of you, I'm out of here. Like that, that was not my first step. Like I, I had a lot of, I think the hardest part was, and I know this is really hard, is like, even when you get to that point where you're like, okay, I'm ready to explain to them what is going on with me. I've done the crying in the bathroom. I've like stayed home on the hardest, hardest, hardest days and just told them that I like have the flu all of a sudden out of the blue, whatever it is. Um, the next step that I think is even harder is for people who don't have someone in their workplace um, that is willing to have like safe conversations is having conversations about 
incredibly intimate personal things with someone who like doesn't know you probably just wants you to come to work and get your job done and who probably also isn't equipped to talk about these things in a way that's like trauma informed and safe and from a place that is going to protect your brain and your mental health over their business and I think that that for me, I had so many conversations that were not well received and heard from many managers. It was like, literally told me you need to check your dead mom at the door because you're coming here to do business. And that is a very hard thing to hear. And after that, and knowing that that is what I heard, and I've heard so many worse stories from other people of managers saying like, you took your bereavement leave. That was the time that you got, like you need to be done with this. And I think that being able to then still say like, and I'm out, it's like, it can be really challenging. Um, not just because, and I keep seeing it's a place of privilege, like that's your income. That's your life. That's how you support your family. That's how you support yourself. That's hopefully where you like do a thing that you really enjoy and maybe you're just surrounded by crappy people um and so i think that there's so many layers of complexity and so that's why i like to focus on like y'all just need to know that i'm going to take care of me because at the end of the day that's what you should want too because i'm not going to be a good writer i'm not going to be a good teammate and i'm not going to be a good staff member if i'm burnt out from ignoring my grief because you told me that i need to check my dead mom at the door so <laughs> just casually snapping over here and, and <laughs> like yes all the yes so much yes that is that is horrifying and also not surprising and also it's, it's I'm gonna there's like a the fire in me wants to be ranty about that because I'm like this is what's wrong like what's wrong is that like we don't there's no space for the human experience in capitalism at all yeah. And it's not equitable in any way at all. And it's not okay. So when I think about the utopia, I'm like, that's part of it. We'll add that to the list. Of like, Put it on my, on my platform. My mom we'll add it to it. the vision board yeah. of like, <laughs> we're going to create like a flexible bereavement process for workers, maybe of some kind. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. Of I, course. yeah. <laughs> I could talk to you forever and I'm like looking at the time and I'm like, how did this go so quick? Um, I want to hold space for the, the $5 million question. <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> I ask every guest on this podcast, if $5 million dropped into their lap, what they would do with it. It's ethically sound. There's no taxes. It's just like, here you go. You can have this to do to do good in the world, to buy yourself something, like it's whatever you want to do with it. So I'm curious what you would do with it. Can I ask a question? Just because absolutely, I'm, I'm facing this in my answer myself. I'm, I don't know why, but my brain immediately went to what is one thing that would cost $5 million, but I don't know why that is, is do people usually say like one thing or is, cause I could do like 20 things There's and I'm just really list. curious. I'm like, no. why, why is my brain like, I got to do the most expensive, impactful thing with that 5 million bucks. <laughs> um, okay. No, then you I'll can say, have, a, you can, you could do, you could give us a whole bucket list of things if you'd I'll, like. <laughs> yeah. I'll say a couple of things. Um, 
I am currently working on a database of grief and mental health resources for BIPOC folks. And so um, I'm in the phase right now where I've collected a lot of resources and a lot more than I expected. Um, and I am at a stage where I'm in development of figuring out how to make these resources accessible to people. Um, I think that sometimes we have a list of things dumped in our lap. It's like, oh, you need a therapist? Here's like a database of 400 therapists. Figure out which one you need. Not helpful. For me, what I'm trying to do with this resource list is help people create pathways between, I know I need help. There's therapists out there. What kind of therapist do I need? What do I need a therapist for? How often do I want to need a therapist? Can I afford a therapist? Like what kind of therapy do I actually need to help me with whatever I'm going through? And then we help you find the therapist um, that will help you with your specific personalized needs. And so I'm like in this place right now where I'm having all these conversations with people about development of something like that. And I'm realizing, oh, this is, this would be a beautiful thing to have a bunch of money to put toward because I want it to work well and I want it to work right. And I want it to be useful for people of color and their most vulnerable, challenging moments. So I'd probably put a lot of money toward that because tech and things like that I'm finding are so expensive. Um, and I think that it's missing in the world right now. And the other thing that I would do personally, um, like a personal thing that I would do, my husband and I, um, his family lives in Australia and my family lives in Canada and the US. And we have been apart from his family for years now, just, and now with COVID, we're not able to get back to Australia. So um, the minute that Australia opened up, I would finally like put a plan in place for us to live between both for a while and spend more time with his family. And um, in a lot of ways, grieving with his family and grieving with my family um, and being able to spend more time specifically, but it's, it, that is also incredibly expensive to live um, between two different countries on opposite sides of the world. So that's, uh, those are the two things that I would, $5 million would get me pretty far with both of those things for a little while. <laughs> would you include a private quarantine jet is really what I'm wondering right now. Yo, okay. <laughs> I like that idea because I just flew from Canada to California because I had to move back to California on Sunday night. And I was like, I never want to be in an airplane with people ever again. I'm like, because you're so high, especially in this moment, I'm like, how did I never notice these things before? And how much you touch and all these things? And I'm like, Oh man, when we go to Australia and it's like 15 hours on a plane, I can't imagine what it's going to be like the first time. So yeah, maybe a private jet. It probably would also involve just like, I don't know, getting all of us little suits when we get to Australia so that we wouldn't have to quarantine, but we could still hug each other. I don't know. I'm just like, get us all the little hazmat suits. <laughs> oh, hazmat can suits. Drop a dime on those. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Do you know how much money you need for your dream, uh, your dream grief resource project? Um, I don't. I'm having a couple of conversations about that right now, though. So I'll let you know because yeah. we'll I am. Up, we'll update the show notes when, yeah. when you know and we can track the money being raised. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. So good. That would be incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Where else can people find you, stalk you, get more of you? 
be all up in your world and resources and brilliance? Yeah. Um, so I have a website. It's alisafornery.com. I have the Instagram. It is alisa.fornery. I have Twitter, but I don't use it. So until I start doing that, uh, you don't need to look there. And I'm on Facebook. Um, and it's uh, like for the, the, my page is grief is hard AF. Um, so that's where people can find me. Um, I'm also, oh, that's something I'd put money towards. So I'm, I'm working on a book and a book proposal right now. Um, and I would probably take some time off to finish that because it is a beast. Um, and it's beautiful and it's exciting. And I'm just like super stoked on the project, but it takes, hopefully that'll be a place people can find me in the future. Um, and yeah, just thinking about that, I was like, oh, I should probably put some money toward that too. Cause that's going to be a, a project and a half, but yeah. <laughs> I fully I support that so hard. <laughs> Thank you. Thank for my imaginary five million dollars. Thank you. Budget approved. <laughs> yes, budget approved, co-signed, authorized. <laughs> awesome. Alisa, thank, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing all of this. I could talk to you for hours. We're gonna cut it off now because you've got things to do. And yeah, but thank you so much again. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Hey, if you're a writer entrepreneur ready to grow your business to multiple six figures while also getting your personal writing done and making an impact, I created Craft and Cashflow for you. This Creative Leadership Collective is a 12-month program that will help you implement the exact steps I took to grow from six to multiple six figures, churn out writing work that got me attention and enthusiastic collaborators, and make a difference. We get started September 7th, and I'm so excited. If you're curious to learn more about this virtual group program where you'll get tons of personal attention, coaching, and strategy on your writing and your business, and even some energy work and healing too, let's talk. I've opened up a few times in my calendar for quick chats just for this. You can head to creativesmakingmoney.com chat to grab a time. Speak soon. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Creatives Making Money, and please don't go anywhere without subscribing. My hope is that the show becomes the therapy you didn't have to pay for and gives you all the know-how, confidence, and ahas you need to succeed on your journey. Sharing how you connected with this episode really makes my day. So please tag me on Instagram at Jamie Lynn Jensen and let me know how this episode helped you. Sharing that with a rating and review also helps me reach more awesome humans like you and I so appreciate it. If you're looking to connect with more listeners and like-minded creatives like you as well, and also with me, please join us in the private Creatives Making Money Facebook group at creativesmakingmoney.com group. It's totally free to join. And as always, you can find all important links and details in this episode's show notes available at creativesmakingmoney.com. Do not hesitate to head over there right now and grab all the goodies. And as always, create like you mean it.